I bring greetings to you from your granddaughter church, Mercy Presbyterian. Uh, it's a great honor and privilege to be here with you this holy week to open up God's Word. Our meditation this day comes from Lamentations chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 25 through 33. If there's one book that seems kind of anti-Dallas in nature, perhaps it'd be hard to pick a better book than Lamentations because it brings us face to face with something that we dread, with suffering and with sorrow and with sadness. This is an experience of God's people. They had lost their homeland and in the first two laments, they're from a communal cry nature. It's all of God's people crying out together in sorrow and sadness over the suffering that they're experiencing. But now in this third lament, it changes. It's not communal anymore. We get to hear the cry of the writer. We get to hear how he responds to the suffering of his people, what he feels and what he thinks and where he hopes. The question that we have to ask ourselves this day is, how do we keep from giving up? How do we keep from giving in? How do we keep from giving out in the face of suffering and sorrow and sadness when it seems to overwhelm us? How do we keep going? And the beauty of God's word is that he gives us not only a voice, not only a way to express our grief and our anguish, but he gives us a place to go. He gives us strength for today. He gives us hope for tomorrow. And so I invite you to listen as I read from God's word, Lamentations 3, beginning in verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray briefly together. Our Father, we do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our Lord and our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We, the people of Dallas, were rudely interrupted this past Friday night as we were probably already in bed or climbing into our beds and then sirens began to blare all around the city. These sirens that caused shock and surprise because we didn't know that bad weather was on the way, we didn't know that trouble was coming and so in the Hamby household we have a little schnauzer named Scout and he began to howl as he has never howled before. I was talking to a friend who said that they had out-of-town family from small town West Texas and this family member began to run down the stairs and began to grab her throat and she believed that she was breathing in sarin gas and she was desperate to get out of Dallas as quickly as possible and to get back to small town West Texas. It's, it, of course, the surprise and the shock wore off and, and then all of a sudden it was a bit of resentment and anger and frustration that with people uh, would go uh, to such lengths to mess with us. Don't mess with Texas, but they did. Um, you know, it's one of those things where these hackers decided to have fun at our expense. And I thought about how that experience 
in a bit uh, of a way is a picture of how we respond to suffering and to sadness and sorrow. The first thing that we do when it comes our way is that we're shocked and we're surprised because we weren't expecting it. We don't understand why these things are happening to us. How did this happen? Why is this happening? What's going on here? But then when that suffering and that sorrow and sadness begin to settle in, then we, we turn sometimes from away from shock and surprise and more towards frustration, which oftentimes gives birth to anger. We become resentful. We say things like, why does this kind of thing always happen to me? What did I do to deserve this? You see, we understand that we're casualties, but in those moments, we fail to realize that we're also criminals. We fail to realize that the suffering that we're experiencing not only is deserved, but we deserve much worse than what we're getting. We don't know what to do with it. And then we become unhinged or unglued, and sometimes that unhinging leads to a hopelessness. Because we don't really know how to respond when bad things, when trouble and sorrow come our way. We try to get away from it. We don't want to come face to face with reality. We try to subdue it. We try to ignore it. We try to run from it. We try to hide from it. We try to numb it. We try to fix it. But we can't do any of those things because they don't work. On Friday night when the sirens blared, one of the things that may uh, worry you about me, or maybe they'll make you jealous about me, is that I slept like a baby through the entire thing. It was two days later that I found out that there was actually an event. I did not know anything was happening at our house. I was sound asleep through the whole affair. And that's kind of where we want to be when suffering comes our way, isn't it? We want to sleep through it. We don't want to feel it. We don't want to know about it. We want to put a do not disturb sign up. Please leave me alone. That's really what we want, is we want to be left alone. But that's not reality. We won't be left alone. You see, when suffering comes our way, we begin to lose our grip on the truth because of all the waves of trouble. I want to come at it from a little bit different angle. I came across a little reading, an article. I want to share with you an excerpt from a Christian woman, and she says this. And I think this is something that at least I can, and hopefully all of us can, as Dallas people relate to. She says, my life looks better on the internet than it does in real life. Everyone's life looks better on the internet than it does in real life. The internet is partial truths. We get to decide what people see and what they don't. It makes sense then that anyone else's fun or beauty or sparkle gets under our skin. It magnifies our own dissatisfaction with that moment. When you're waiting for your coffee to brew, the majority of your friends probably aren't doing anything more special. But it only takes one friend at the Eiffel Tower to make you feel like a loser. What I want to say about that is, is that I think it's a good example of how we struggle to be honest. We struggle to live life honestly. We struggle to face the things that come our way with honesty. We want to run from trouble. And I don't mean this in a, in a mean way, but I mean this in an honest way, in a pastoral way. I would suggest to you that I think Christians of all people are sometimes the most dishonest. We don't know what to do when things don't go our way. And that's the beauty of this passage. Holy Week is kind of this big roadblock. It makes us deal with reality. And this passage makes us deal with reality. You see, what it does is it says you have to be honest, and it gives us a voice to be honest. But it not only gives us a voice, but it shows us the way. I want us to see just a couple of things quickly about how this writer helps us to see how we can face reality. 
sorrow and suffering and sadness without giving up and giving in and giving out. Look what he does. He's honest. The verse, verse 25, he says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. He doesn't ignore the trouble. He doesn't numb it. He doesn't seek to distract himself, but he's honest about it. He says, hey, there's trouble amongst us. He says, verse 27, it's good for a man that he bear the yoke in youth. But what he does is very un-American. It doesn't make any rational sense to us because the way that he is honest with suffering first is he acknowledges it. And then the second, his plan of attack is to wait, to wait, to stop, to sit in silence, to stop speaking, to stop talking, not to say anything. That seems like a crazy plan. That seems like probably the worst plan in the world, but that seems to be his plan. But it's not just that he waits. It's not just that he stops talking, but he says that he seeks the Lord. Verse 25, you know, the hope is found in seeking the Lord. And on the surface, that seems like a very Christian thing to do. But if we can bring some logic to bear, that seems like the most illogical thing to do at this particular moment. Because the one that he seeks for salvation is the one who has brought the suffering. You understand that? The one that he seeks for salvation is the one who has brought the suffering upon them. And yet that's his plan, to wait, to stop, to be quiet, and to seek the one who has brought the suffering. Not only is that what he does, but that's what he invites us to do. Now, that seems like, okay, seems honestly like a terrible idea, but okay, in order for me to embrace that, I need to understand why I should possibly think about doing that. And he gives us a reason. He tells us why we should do it. He basically roots it in two things, who God is and what he's promised to us, God's character and God's promises. The first thing he says about God in verse 25 is that the Lord is good. It's hard to understand how a man could say that about God in the midst of such suffering, but that's what he does. But then he tells us something about who God is and his promises to us. Look in verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of man. You see, what the writer says is this. He says, the Lord gets angry, but the Lord is love. The Lord's anger is but for a moment, but his love is always abounding. He says, this is what you need to know about the Lord, the one that you seek for salvation. You see, here's the truth that he promises to his people, that he will not cast off forever, that though you run from him, he'll run for you. He says he won't cast you off forever. Not only is the grief is here for a moment, because he will again have compassion because of the abundance of his steadfast love. You see, what you have to know and what you have to believe and what you have to trust is coming your way is that the sorrow will fade and the beauty is coming, that God's compassion is coming towards you. It's coming for you. And then he says something that's altogether strange to me. In verse 33, he says, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of, man, of men. What does that mean? He means this. He means that grief and affliction are not what the Lord's heart truly wants for his people. That's not his desire. That's not his greatest want. It's what he's willing to do. It's what he will do in order to bring us to where he wants us to be. But that's not his utmost desire and goal for us. That's not his purpose for us. He says that's why you can seek him. That's why you can wait on him. That's why you can stop talking. That's why you can sit in silence because he will not cast you off. Compassion is coming. He has better things in store for you. 
Now, perhaps we can move ourselves to the point that we can believe that this could be true for him, and maybe we can move ourselves to the point that we believe that this could be true for them. But how can we know that this will be true for us? How do you know that he will not cast you off? How do you know that his compassion will come for you? How do you know that he will not willingly afflict and grieve you? How do you know that? Well, Holy Week gives us the answer, doesn't it? Because we know that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord, the one that we seek, the one who's brought the suffering, the one who is salvation, but the Lord has laid on him, has laid on his son, his only begotten son, the iniquity of us all. That the only begotten son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He weeps with us. He weeps for us. He's the one that God struck and smote and afflicted. That's the, one of the craziest parts of the whole Bible in Isaiah 53 where it says he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. It doesn't say by us. It doesn't say by the Romans. It doesn't say by the Jews. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. You see, the Father who had known eternal communion in the most perfect sense with his only son, the joy of, the, of his eternal heart did the most unthinkable thing, the most unexplainable thing, and yet the most wonderful thing for us. That he struck his son, he cast his son off. He cast his son away. He afflicted him. He grieved him. He withdrew his loving kindness from him. On the cross, the Lord Jesus cried out this cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what I want you to understand, my friends, is this. It wasn't as if they were pretending to do something that wasn't happening. It wasn't like the Lord Jesus felt forsaken on the cross. It was that the Father actually forsook the Son, whom was the joy of his eternal heart, upon the cross. You see, he bore our sin. He became a curse for us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why? That we might be the righteousness of God. And so what does this passage invite us to do? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't invite us to do. And let me say briefly what Holy Week does not invite us to do. I don't mean this in a mean way, but I've been around the PCA for my entire life. Actually, one of the ministers here uh, Paul Settle was my childhood minister. I, was, I remember being raised in the church by him. I, can't rem I guess I've been to 43 uh, Easter services now and um, 43 Holy Weeks. And sometimes I get myself worked up into a frenzy where it's almost like I try to relive the drama. I try to pretend that I'm kind of living it all out. And we're not trying to pretend that something didn't happen that already did. And sometimes when I get myself worked up into a frenzy, I start to feel really bad about the fact that not only am I a casualty, but I'm also a criminal. And I start to think, what does Jesus want from me? And, and Sinclair Ferguson had some words that really struck me and stuck with me for, for so long, for some time. Because I think if we spent longer together, maybe most of us could come to grips with the fact that we actually do deserve suffering and sadness and sorrow. Um, and we would be so grateful for what Jesus has done for us. But I think our emotional response sometimes is this. We pity Jesus. We feel bad about it. We pity him. 
and I don't mean this in a, in a mean way either, but I, please hear me say this. Don't pity Jesus. He doesn't want your pity. He doesn't want you to pity him. He pities you. And, and this was one of the hardest things I, I heard Sinclair Ferguson say, but he said, you can go to hell pitying Jesus. And you will. But you won't, and you'll know salvation, and you'll know compassion, and you'll know st- steadfast love, and you'll know embracing. If when you come face to face with reality, when you come face to face with sorrow and sadness and suffering, if you're able to be honest, if in that moment you'll turn toward him and you'll take hold of him and you'll cast yourself upon him and you'll trust him, then you'll know blessings that you could never imagine knowing in all of your days. Amen.